aren't aware, we have always been one church in two locations, with one location in uh, Chandler now, and uh, downtown here, Midtown area. We have been a second location for a number of years, and God has led us to this path called particularization, where we are becoming a distinct uh, church, and so we'll be Ascension Church of Phoenix here in just a couple of months on February 6th. And uh, in preparation for that, I want us to spend some time thinking about that identity. And uh, we're going to be spending a few weeks doing that. But today, as we're in between things and after Christmas, before New Year's, I wanted to return to a couple of passages that I have uh, cherished over the years when I want to strengthen my faith, when I want to understand what is it that God is calling me to and how I, how I can watch my own belief and, and be aware of it. We have two passages in front of us where Jesus is amazed at something. Two places where Jesus says, wow. Only two places in the Scripture where Jesus marvels at something. That's the word that's used. Jesus marveled at them. There's lots of places where people marvel at Jesus. They are astonished by, they are um, wowed by Him. They are amazed by His teaching, by His healing, by His presence. But there's only a couple of places where Jesus Himself is amazed. And so we're going to read these two passages. Uh, kids in the room, you guys can see if you can notice where, we, where Jesus marvels at something. Because it's only used twice. One in each of these passages. Let's read together. Mark chapter 6 first. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Matthew chapter 8. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I myself will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This is the word of the Lord. So I have this idea for, a, I don't know if it's an app or if it's a website or a wiki or something. I have zero skills to make any of those things happen. This is, this is just my idea. So if you're one of those developers out there, then you can take it, this and, and run with it. I only require 40% of the company uh, that you start. No, this is, this is my idea. It's, a, it's like an inspiration map. What I mean by that is 
When you listen to podcasts, you listen to the radio, you, um, you read interviews in magazines, you, uh, you see experts being interviewed, one of the questions that is often asked of people that are inspiring themselves is, what is inspiring you? You have an artist, a music artist, being interviewed, and somebody asks, well, what, is, what are the records that are spinning at your house right now? Or you have uh, an author of a book, and you say, well, what's on your nightstand? What are you reading right now? What inspired you? And different artists, different um, people that are experts in their field can ask, what is it that inspired you towards whatever it is that you are doing Where did you first get your inspiration? And so perhaps then we could create a map of influences that uh, different people could contribute to, maybe like a wiki where you have people that hear this on on a radio station, they hear this on a podcast, and they put it all together, and you can go under the inspiration itself, or you can go under the the artist, and you can see, well, this artist was influenced by these painters and these musicians or whatever, and it all connects together. It becomes a map, and so you can see that the same Pablo Picasso influenced Bob Dylan over here, but it also influenced this author over here, and you can kind of create a map of inspiration. That's the idea. Patent pending. Um, I think the, the reason why that would be fascinating, at least to me, and nobody, I'm, not that I know if anybody's created this, so maybe it's just me, um, is the people that inspire us, we want to know what inspires them. The people who amaze us, we want to know what amazes them. Where did it come from? The people that make us say, wow, we're interested in, in why, what makes them say, wow. And that is essentially what Jesus does in these passages. He is amazed. and says He marvels at them. He says, wow. And what makes Him, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to to walk with Him, what makes Him say wow should be of great interest to us. There are plenty of times, as I said in the Scripture, where people marvel at Jesus, but what does He marvel at? And to begin with, we need to know something of this staggering concept. Is this even, is this even possible? Maybe we have a theological question concerning this. Can, is it possible for Jesus to be amazed? Jesus being God Himself. Does, does God get amazed? Amazement sometimes implies this surprise. Is Jesus surprised by what He sees? Theologian John Calvin says this about that passage. He says, Though amazement is not appropriate for God, seeing as it must arise from new and unexpected happenings, yet it could occur in Christ inasmuch as He has taken on our human emotions along with our flesh. You see what He says in the Christmas story we just celebrated yesterday. God in the flesh, He came not just with external flesh, but He came as flesh with human emotions. And as such, He is surprised or He marvels in a sense at what He sees before Him. And what He marvels at in these passages is people's different heart responses to Him. In other words, the level of their faith. And in fact, the passages are mirror images of one another. You can see them as almost the opposite to each other. 
In each case, Jesus marvels, but it's in a different sense. In each case, he says, wow, but it, it rings differently. And we have this even in the English language, right? I can, I can say two different wow statements and you understand the meaning is different. That sunset is amazing. Wow. Or if I said something like this, so you're going to be that way. Wow. You immediately pick up on the difference, even though it's the same word. Just a little different inflection. Because we know that wow can be both amazing good and amazing troubling. And so the question that we inevitably have to ask ourselves is, well, how does Jesus view my faith? When it comes to my view of Him, what does He see? And to just clarify before we dive into the passages, it's important for us to know that you don't have to have spectacular faith for Jesus to be amazed at you. That's not the conclusion that we're going to come to. It's not that some people are super Christians and they have this amazing faith and Jesus looks on them and thinks, wow, and then everybody else is kind of like mediocre. That's not the correct way to understand this passage. We need to see what amazes Jesus as a way to follow into this pattern, but not be overwhelmed. The Scriptures tells us in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus later is going to say, that you have to have faith as a mustard seed to be in the kingdom of God. Just faith of the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. And so it is not the amount of faith that saves us, but it's still good for us to know. What does Jesus find amazing about this person's faith as a pattern that we can live into? And here's what I want us to see. Analyzing our belief, belief and faith are the same thing in the Scriptures. They're the same word. Analyzing our belief means that we look at how we view ourselves and how we view Jesus. Those two things. How we view ourselves and how we view Jesus tells us about our faith. And it's exactly what we're told in these two passages. Those two mirror images. We can see how they viewed themselves and how they viewed Jesus. Let's look at the first passage. Amazing unbelief in Mark chapter 6. He marvels because of their unbelief. Who are these people? Verse 1, He went away from there and came to His hometown and His disciples followed Him. His hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth is a nowhere town, an insignificant place. Population less than 500 at this time. You remember in John's Gospel, Nathaniel, the disciple, said this famous phrase, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was shocking that Jesus was from Nazareth. That was how insignificant it was. It actually took several hundred years for a Christian church to be established in the region of Nazareth. That's how insignificant it is. Jesus' own hometown didn't have a Christian church for several hundred years. So this is the place where He comes and where He sees people who are in turn astonished at him, look at verse 2, on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now that word astonished there is different from the word marvel, even though they have overlapping meanings. They were astonished. And that astonished can be a good thing or a bad thing. They see his, his healing work. They see his ability to teach. How are these mighty works done by his hand? And they want, they're astonished. 
Are they going to be astonished in a good way? Are they going to follow him or are they going to criticize him? It becomes the latter. They use this astonishment to turn against him. And the key thing to note with the questions that they ask here is to see their view of themselves. How they view themselves is behind these rhetorical questions when they say in verse 2, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his name? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? These rhetorical questions are designed to say, look, we know what's going on here. And we, because of what we know, we can stand in judgment of this person before us. Even though we don't know where he's getting his authority, we know enough to put him in his place underneath us. That's what they're saying. They have that view of themselves. Even though they come from Nazareth, they have a high view of what they understand about Jesus. That's their view of self. But they have a view of Jesus implied in these questions as well. They question him. They question his credentials. Where does he get his wisdom? That question is really asking, who is his rabbi? We know that, that he can't have had these things himself. We've, we've known Jesus since he was little. He's never talked like this before, so he must have someone else who's influencing him, and we'll want to give them credit for whatever it is that, that he does that's astonishing. Who is his rabbi? What about his family? We know. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. He's called the son of Mary here. It's the only time I'm aware of. There could be one or two other instances where someone is identified as the son of a mother first and foremost in the Scriptures. The son of Mary. Perhaps, likely, insulting Jesus' lineage here. Why not the son of Joseph? Perhaps hinting that at Jesus' illegitimacy. He had questionable origins. We know he came from Mary, but who's his real father? And they're amazed at the way that he teaches. And it's interesting in their astonishment, as you look in the scriptures, as I've said, you see people responding to Jesus, and many of them are astonished. And sometimes often they are surprised and they say things like, who is this man? We've never heard things like this. And it's in a positive way. Who is this? How could he have come here? How is he among us? I mean, how is this possible? But this time, it's, it's a different slant on the question. It's more like, who does he think he is? You can imagine that they would, having known Jesus, just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, that, you know, this little upstart, like he's just, he's talking his mouth off, but it doesn't really matter. You could imagine them seeing him and say, like, shrugging their shoulders. Why should we care? But they don't have that response. It actually makes them angry because their familiarity with him doesn't breed not caring, doesn't breed boredom, it breeds contempt. Or we get this phrase. Familiarity breeds contempt. They take offense at him, verse 3. Literally, he became a stumbling block to them. 
They couldn't see past it. They couldn't see past what they thought they knew about Jesus. They couldn't square it with what they knew or thought they knew about him. This kind of polarizing response is something that I think we have to reckon with with Jesus Christ. We can't really agree with the Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just alright with me. He's, is he just alright? I mean, people say these kinds of things. People say, I respect Jesus. Um, I think Jesus was a good person. I think he taught so many good things. I don't believe he's the Son of God. I don't believe he was God. I don't believe he's the only way. But Jesus is alright. People say these types of things. And I know what they mean. And I understand being in that position But really, at the end of the day, the only way that you can think that is if you haven't been listening to Jesus Himself. You haven't experienced His authority like they did that day when they they were astonished by by how He taught them. They knew. They had to to respond some kind of way and there was an astonishment in their hearts and they think, I either got to follow Him or I got to hate Him. Because His authority is inescapable. If you listen to Jesus, He Himself claims to be God. He Himself claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. It's not the things that we say about Jesus. It's what He says Himself. And so if you're going to follow Him and truly follow Him, if you're truly going to engage with what He's saying, in the end, there is only worship or contempt. The way that we know our heart's response to Jesus The way we apply this is to ask ourselves when it comes to Jesus and His teaching and His authority and His Scriptures and all of what Jesus is, do you find your heart saying in a positive way, who is this? Does He compel you? Does He draw you in? Or is your response more like, who does He think He is? When the Scriptures are read, is it like a battle? Is it like a Headbutting? Is it like an embarrassment? Is it like a distancing? Or is it a, this is for me? This Christ is the one that I want to know. We can all be guilty of this kind of small town arrogance. Because I know that's a thing. When I um, graduated from seminary, I had a couple of job offers, and one of them was to my hometown in Yazoo City, Mississippi, the First Presbyterian Church of Yazoo City, Mississippi, a town of 10,000 people on the edge of the Mississippi Delta. And we were considering taking it, and we took a, we took a trip out to that town. And I remember when I got there, um, there was just a lot of small-town drama in this town of 10,000 people over us. See, in, in Yazoo City, Mississippi, there, there are two churches in our denomination, the two Presbyterian churches, First Pres and Second Pres. And I grew up at Second Pres, but I was being offered a job at First Pres, and the drama that surrounded that amazed us. Like, everybody in the town was talking about, like, well, I don't know if you should take that. Like, that person goes there, they used to go here, and we just heard all this stuff when we got there. And we think, like, why do you care? You know, why do you feel like you have so much authority, you know? <laughs> It's easy to dump on small towns when you live in in Phoenix, I guess. There can be that kind of small town arrogance. We know that in towns that that rings true, but it's also there can be a small town arrogance in our own hearts. 
And it looks like this. What we think we know can harden us. What we think we understand about Christ. What we think we know from growing up and hearing Him. What we think we know from some theological books that we may have read. Or what we, we can become tired of hearing about Jesus. We can become bored with Him. And we can, become, we can hold Him in contempt. That, lack, that familiarity can lead dangerously to a lack of faith. And what's interesting is, what does Jesus do when their dwindling faith intensifies? When they mount up arguments against Him? Does He zap them? Does He judge them on the spot? Does He, does he reveal some party trick that then shows them that He's the Son of God? No. He leaves them. Which to me is the scariest response of all. He leaves them. Verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Verse 5 may be a troubling verse to you if you believe that the Scriptures about God teach us that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And you see, Jesus could do no mighty work there. What does that mean? It kind of reminds me of the, of the question that sometimes we ask in philosophical circles. You know, if God is so powerful, can He create a rock that's so big that He Himself can't lift it? Maybe you've heard that before. And the idea is to undermine the power of God and say, well, if He's either not powerful enough to create it or He's not powerful enough to lift it. And we think we win some kind of philosophical victory. But that, that way of understanding is not the way that the Scriptures present God to us. The Bible always presents God as being constrained by His character. And so we're told that God cannot lie. God cannot change. God cannot deny Himself. These are Scripture passages. And so we see that God does work within a constrained way in the world, in the way of His choosing. God is always the first cause. He is always the one who works first. His creation of the world then leads into every other second cause. But there are things as primary causes and secondary causes. He also creates physics, for instance, which is a secondary cause. And God can use that. Can He go above physics? Of course He can. He most often does not. Because He uses second causes. And our catechism and our our, um, our understanding of the Scriptures teach us that God uses things in such a way that His first causes and His second causes do not violate one another. And one of the second, secondary causes is our faith. It's our response to God that God uses in the world. Can He work above our faith and beyond our faith? Of course. But He doesn't. He works within it. He works through this faith, which is while he can see. This is not a place where I'm going to be received. And he leaves it. And he marvels at their lack of faith. Amazing unbelief. More quickly, let's go to the second passage where we see amazing belief. Where we see another view of self and another view of Jesus on display from a centurion. Verse 5 of chapter 
8 of Matthew. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. This happens in a town as well, Capernaum, rather than Nazareth. Capernaum was like Jesus' adult hometown. It's where he spent the most time in his adult ministry. And Jesus receives this man and the centurion and he hears his plight and he says emphatically, I, I myself will come and heal him. But the centurion tells him to stay and to heal him from a distance. Showing his humility. That is his view of the self. So whereas familiarity leads to contempt, here humility leads to faith. The humility of the centurion is evident in the way that he talks to Jesus. He says to him, Lord, or Master, showing that he is being deferential to Jesus. Then he says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That not worthy comment is very particular because there are others around him who are saying he is worthy. We don't have this in this account, but in Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us the same story, slightly different details given. And one of those details is that the elders of Israel come to Jesus with this man and they say about him, this man is worthy. He is worthy of your attention. Apparently he was not just a centurion. Originally, centurion was just a leader of a hundred soldiers. That's where the word centurion comes from. But it grew over time to mean a much greater military leader. And so he was a great military leader, but also a public servant. They say he is worthy. He loves our nation. He helped finance the synagogue. This centurion was popular, famous, well-liked, respected, obviously a good guy it's obvious for his whole errand to jesus he cares enough about his servant his servant his commander of hundreds or thousands is concerned enough about his servant that he himself comes to jesus this is a good man but he doesn't talk about his goodness he says i'm not worthy he says the exact opposite of what other people are saying don't listen to them I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Just say the word. He gives further explanation because I'm a man under authority. Not a man of authority, but under authority. He doesn't flex the position that he has over others, but rather his position underneath. I'm a man under authority. I know how authority works, and I know that you can do this without needing to come to my house. And so Jesus marvels at him. He doesn't, marvel that, that, he doesn't marvel that this man believes that he can heal at a distance, like he's capable of some kind of power like that. He marvels because of the connection that he makes with Jesus' authority. That even the sickness is under his command. Much like when Jesus calmed the waves at the sea and they say, even the wind and the waves obey him. They understood Not just the the physical reality of a miracle, but the authority that must accompany that physical reality. Jesus marvels. And so we have the mirror image before us. 
Nazareth, a bunch of small towners who don't, in fact, know very much, yet hold themselves in high regard and hold Jesus in contempt. And you have Capernaum where you have a Gentile, not someone of the household of God, who has every, on the other hand, social right to be looked at and demanding respect, and yet he is humble. What about our faith? How do we reflect on these verses and see what kind of faith we're being invited to have? As I've said before, we're not invited to have a certain amount of faith so that Jesus accepts us. Faith is first and foremost a gift, something that the centurion knew very well. He was a Gentile. He was outside of the promises of God. The only way that he has the light is if the light came to him rather than him coming to the light. And so this faith was a gift before it was a response. And faith is always a gift before it is a response. It is always given by God and then commanded to be a response from that gift. I heard a story a few years ago about a mother who wanted... Uh, or, or a, a son who wanted to get his mother a Christmas gift. He wanted to buy her something, and yet he didn't have any money, and so he told her that he didn't have any money. The mom heard him, and then one day said very loudly in his presence, I wish someone would pick up the sticks in the yard. I would pay $10 to someone if they did that. And the boy responded, he picked up the sticks in the yard. He was paid for it. Then he told his mom that he wanted to go to the store, but he couldn't get there. And so the mom drove him to the store. And as they were looking around, she happened to show him a necklace that she liked that was $9. When he fumbled at the counter and didn't know how to give the money or get the change right, she helped him buy the necklace. When they got home from the store, the boy announced that he was going to wrap the pre the, his Christmas presents, but he came out frustrated a few minutes later because he wasn't able to wrap it, and so the mom went in and wrapped it. She put it under the tree, and on Christmas morning, she came in, she opened it, and what did she do? She threw her arms around the boy and, and thanked him for the gift that he had given her. So it is with faith. It's always a gift from God. He seeks us out. He equips us. He purchases us with His redemption. He enables our response to Him. And then when we finish the race, He says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Even though... It was not possible for us to finish without Him. And so, faith is always a gift. As a centurion was the recipient of a grace that was alien to him, so we in Phoenix, Arizona, are also this recipients of grace that is extended to the ends of the earth. It's not originating with us. It comes from Him. And how much is needed a mustard seed. 
the amount of faith is not what saves you. We can come to Christ clinging just by a fingernail this morning and be received by Him. Even though He uses the secondary cause of our faith, He does not require a certain amount from us in order to be received. He is able to work with anything and has shown throughout history that He does so, working in all different kinds of ways. He is the one who gives us the faith it is the amount, not the amount of faith. And yet, at the end of the day, don't you want this kind of faith? <laughs> don't you want the centurion's response to be your response? And for Jesus to marvel at the faith that we have in Him. That's a godly desire. How do we get that? Well, as we've said before, what Jesus marvels at are two different things. There's two different levers, so to speak, we can pull here to, un- to increase our faith. And it has to do with the two things we've been talking about. It's our view of ourselves and our view of Christ. When we take a view of ourselves increasing in humility, when we increasingly see how sinful we are, when we increasingly see not just our sin, but also our shortcomings, our lack of ability to control our lives, when we dwell in the fact that all of life that that is good has been given to us, and we reflect that, we give deference to God, in whatever ways we do those things over and over again, we increase our faith because we see more and more that it has nothing to do with us. Simultaneously, if we have a view of Christ that is being enriched, if we have a a constant putting on display before our eyes of Christ, anything that helps us recognize how good He is, how much authority He has over sickness, over my relationships, over my life, over my work, over my heart's affections, as we give more and more things to Him and honor Him with our lives in whatever ways we can do that, our faith grows. We can always increase our faith by returning to those two things. How God sees us and how we see Christ. What I find really comforting is that in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus here gives this very scary statement of marveling because of their unbelief, it's only a few chapters later that Mark uses that word unbelief again for the only other time in his Gospel. And it's in this context, a few chapters later, Jesus is going to meet a man whose son is demon-possessed. And the man is going to say to Jesus, if you can heal him, you know, please do so. And Jesus says, if you can, sarcastically, if you can, all things are possible to those who, for those who believe. And the man, recognizing the tall order of that statement, well, if it's dependent on me, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. That's the only other time Mark uses that word. And so we see at the end of the day, it is not our belief that then completes this. It is Christ helping our unbelief as He healed this man's son. Whatever belief we have is more than enough for Christ to work with because it is not dependent on us. And so, 
I believe the challenge of the passage is to come to Him in belief with whatever faith you have and be received by Him, but then to ask Him for more. Let's pray. We recognize this morning as the body of Christ that we are here only because the promises have been extended throughout the world to the ends of the earth to hear and that the light of Christ has shone on our hearts. It's because you have gifted us access to your story, Father. I pray that that humility and at the same time the exaltation of Christ would be just our heart's song this morning. As we think and reflect on the Christmas story, as we recognize that you came in the flesh, you brought faith to this world, you've come to us. I pray that we would receive you and that you would look on our faith and see, this is good, well done, and we would be encouraged to follow after you hard with our faith. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.